God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Our great and glorious God and Savior is just as much here in our midst, His presence with us and His Spirit with us, as He was at the storefront. Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Our covenant God is here. His hand is leading us here, just as His hand led us there. He holds us here just as He held us there and will hold us everywhere. Why? Well, because of the second point of continuity, the people of Hope Chapel. Because we are still the people of God. That building was not the temple of God, nor is this building the temple of God. We are the temple of God, people of Hope Chapel. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's right. The people of Hope Chapel have not changed. Only the place where we meet is different. What makes Hope Chapel Hope Chapel is the people of Hope Chapel. We still have the faithful service of the nursery and children's church teachers. We still have the friendly greeters and people we get to see on an almost weekly basis. We still have Kurt, Josh, Robbie, Jen, and our amazing, talented musicians leading us in song. We still have the Gillilands hospitality, and we still have Bill's long emails. <laughs> and most importantly, we still have Lord of the Rings illustrations in our sermons. Man, I expected far more laughter than that. But I got, did get a woo, so that's good. Another point of continuity is that we as a church still have the same mission of bringing glory to God through the transformation of lives by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we still have the same values. We still rely on the Bible to establish our understanding of God and how we are able to relate to Him, to each other, and to the world He created. As such, because of that, we still desire to be gospel-centered, Biblically connected, elder-led, and theologically reformed. Now you might have noticed that those four distinctives that I just said all rely upon a fundamental value. That first sentence, our reliance on the Bible and everything. The centrality of the Word of God in all that we believe and all that we do. After all, how do we know what the gospel is? Well, we know from God's Word don't we? What kind of connection do we want? We want a biblical connection. Well, where do we find that? Well, if it's a biblical connection, 
Ought to be in the Bible. Where do we get the idea of elders from? You got it, the Bible. And where do we get Reformed theology from? God's Word. God's Word is foundational to all that we are and want to be as a church. So what is the best way then to celebrate and begin this new era? By focusing on the Word. Rejoicing in the Word. And so we will continue in His Word in the book of Micah this morning. If you would turn there with me, you will notice that we do not have slides, or I did not prepare slides, so... um, you will need to follow along. Now, if, if you did read ahead in Micah, in chapters 2 and 3, you might have wondered, as I did, about this passage as an opening sermon in this new beautiful place. Yeah, did any of you? I was like, huh? It begins with, woe to those, and goes downhill from there. It includes phrases such as, my people have risen up as an enemy, references flaying people's flesh. No, not phileo fish, flaying flesh. And cannibalism, and is filled with warnings of judgment. And that doesn't sound too good now, does it, precious? But if we come to walk away from this passage with a negative view of its contents, then we have not truly understood its intent. For this passage, indeed this entire book and the words that it contains, are meant for good. I want you to key in on a single phrase contained in chapter 2, verse 7. Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright. This, I believe, is the central idea here. This entire section revolves around God's Word, the abuse or misuse of it, and the blessing to those who heed it. The goal of this message this morning is for us to rejoice in His Word, whether it is a word of reproof, or of encouragement, of correction, or of mercy, of discipline, or of promise, that we will rejoice at His Word in its entirety, Because we know it is from a loving Father who desires to do us good. Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright. God's word is meant for the good of the upright. That is for the good of his people. Yes, even those words of judgment and warning like we see in this passage. This concept is not just found in Micah, but is a common theme throughout Scripture. Because, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's profitable. It's good. It's beneficial for God's people so that they may be complete. And how does it do this? Through teaching, through reproof, through correction and training in righteousness. Now think about those two middle ones. The reproof and correction. Let's think about those. Reproof. Another word for it is rebuke. It's the same word in Hebrew as to expose. 
That is, it is given to expose one's sin or to convict of sin. To show where someone is living unrighteously and dishonoring God through their actions. This is clearly occurring in our passage in Micah this morning. The prophet is exposing the unrighteous and unjust actions of the people whom he is prophesying to. Chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to, to whom? To those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it is in their power and the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. He continues in verse 8. But lately my people have arisen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people who drive out from their delight, you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Now remember that this is poetry. He's using symbolic language to describe unjust actions that are occurring. People are devising wickedness in their hearts and minds, plotting to seize the possession of others or those unable to defend themselves. And what is interesting is that they are apparently doing this through legal means or by use of the law. That is what the poetically, is poetically represented through the phrase, when the morning dawns, because it is in the power of their hand. You see, during this time, it was perfectly legal to take someone's field or, or house or whatever if they defaulted on a loan or something like that. These repossessions happened when the people, when the morning dawned in broad daylight when court was convened. How can we take that person's field? Well, I figured out a way in the law to do it. Look at this. Look at it. Oh, I found the loophole. Let's take their stuff. No one was sneaking around in the shadows because all of this was perfectly above board. It was in lines with the law. And yet Micah still calls it oppression. Huh. What is going on here is that people are using whatever means they have at their disposal to benefit themselves at the expense of others. They are conspiring to oppress others legally. Huh. Yeah. Believe it or not, people can twist righteous things into unrighteous things, taking what is good and using it for evil ends. Shocking, I know. We've never done anything like that, have we? No, not me. Use that which is good and holy and, and righteous and, and used it in an evil, wicked and unrighteous, selfish manner. That's what's happening here. They are making use of the letter of the law, scheming up, scheming up ways to use the law to defraud their neighbors of their possessions and dismissing the spirit of the law, which is what? What is the spirit of the law, church? You just learned it two weeks ago. To love your neighbor as yourself. Zechariah 7 says, Render true judgment, says the Lord. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. 
It's no wonder that God says to Israel in Jeremiah 22, Woe to him who builds his house by by unrighteousness, and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing, and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Huh. But it wasn't just the people who were perpetrating these injustices. In chapter 3, Micah turns to the leaders of Israel, those judges and other authorities. Verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Wow! That's vivid symbolism, isn't it? Did you catch that question that it began with? Isn't it for you to know justice? As leaders, they are supposed to know what righteousness and justice are in order to rule in such a way that righteousness and justice are upheld. That people are treated the way God designed for them to be treated because they are created in His image. And yet He describes these administrators and enforcers of God's law as those who hate the good and love the evil, who detest justice, verse 9, and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. And, well, it's not just the political and legislative leaders that it's talking about either. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Verse 11, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. These religious leaders in Israel are also misusing the scriptures for selfish gain. They're using God's word as a weapon, a weapon aimed right at the hearts and the minds of the weak and the desperate to control, to mistreat, to manipulate others. Like Satan in the wilderness, they twist its words for their advantage to defraud their neighbors. And it's an abomination in God's sight. The very fulfillment of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. But these religious leaders have turned it into exploiting your neighbor for your own gain. What God is doing through Micah here is exposing these particular sins within Israel. He's reproving and rebuking them for their wickedness, for practicing injustice, for oppressing those they're supposed to be loving. And this rebuke is for their good. This rebuke is for their good, 
for exposing their unrighteousness. Does not my word do good to those who walk uprightly? So we should stop here and examine ourselves. Yeah, I know, I hate that part too. It isn't just Israelites that are capable of using legal means for their own advantage to the detriment of others, is it? We saw just a couple weeks ago how many of the church fathers, great men, were given over to wicked practices like these. We are not above doing the same. So, is there anywhere in your life that you are manipulating the law or even the scriptures to the detriment of others? To elevate yourself for your personal advantage or privilege while handicapping or subverting others. Tweaking the word of God in order to attempt to justify unrighteous practices. Anywhere within your work? Are there business practices where you found a loophole or, or perhaps some clause in order to justify something that you do? That is technically legal and yet is to the detriment of someone else? Or in relationships, ministry, or family where you are abusing the spirit of the law or the scriptures in order to gain an advantage over someone else? To deceive, manipulate, or oppress someone else? If there is... Rejoice that God is exposing your sin. Hmm. Rejoice that God is exposing your sin. His revealing of your sin is for your good. That you would walk more uprightly before Him. But God's words are not just for reproof but are also for correction. They are intended to set one's behavior aright. God's word is not meant simply to point out sin, but is intended to cause repentance and a turning toward obedience through faith. God's word is meant simply is not meant simply to point out sin, but is intended to cause repentance and a turning toward obedience through faith. This is exactly what is taking place through the warnings of Micah. Micah chapter 2 verse 3. Therefore thus says the Lord. Behold against this family I am devising disaster. From which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily. For it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you. And moan bitterly. And you'll say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. God says that since these people are devising wickedness against others, he will devise disaster for them. Instead of them obtaining fields and houses, they will be deprived of their own. This is a drastic warning against the perpetrators of these injustices. 
It continues in verse 10. Arise and go. For this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be a preacher for this people. This is a continued play on their wickedness. As they evict others from their houses, God will evict them from their land. Arise and go. Get out. He declares in chapter 3 verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Disgrace will descend upon the people and their leaders. They will cry out for God to deliver them, and He will turn His face from them. He will not deliver them nor rescue them because of their evil deeds. They will try and do all of their religious devices and manipulations and practices and, and indulgences, but it will be too late. So, What is going on here? God is warning them. This this has not yet happened. He is telling them what will happen to them if they do not repent. If they do not correct their ways. He is warning them. So let's think about warnings for just a minute. They're all around us, food warnings. Poison warnings, trespass warnings, those annoying severe weather warnings. You probably, if somebody was in here, it'd go off even if your phone was off, wouldn't it? Yeah. Why are warnings given? Warnings are given to tell people that there's potential danger or disaster ahead. That there are repercussions, perhaps serious ones, should someone fail to observe these warnings and stay on their present course. In other words, warnings are meant to keep people safe. Huh. Warnings are meant to keep people safe, to turn them from a potential course that will result in their harm. Warnings are gracious by their very nature. They are meant to be corrective, to do good to those who desire to walk uprightly. God is here warning Israel, telling them what will happen to them if they continue on their present course, to keep them from that very harm. In other words, it is for their good. Does not my word do good to those who walk uprightly? You're not doing it. What I want you to do is to do it. Implicit within all of God's warnings of judgment is the call to repentance. That those, these consequences of which he warns will not occur should they repent. Jeremiah 26, it may be, says the Lord, that they will listen. 
and every one of them turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. Huh. Wow. Remember when, when the king of Nineveh issued that proclamation? Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Then he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And they did. And when God saw that they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. How gracious of God is it to send this prophet and these warnings to turn them back to him and away from destruction? Does not my word do good? And the same is true for us. God's word is filled with warnings to turn us from our sin and the potential harm that it can do to us and to others. These warnings are for our good. When we see them, we see these warnings of judgment, we ought to rejoice. Yes, you heard me right. When we see these warnings of judgment, they are warnings. This means it has not happened because God is giving you the opportunity to repent. It is gracious. Rejoice because these are meant to keep you safe. Rejoice because you have not yet incurred the harm or judgment that our actions deserve and that we still have time to repent before they do. Through these warnings in His Word, God is pointing us away from evil and to the good to do us good. And yet there is always the potential for someone to reject these warnings. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach such things. They, they sound like Prince Humperdinck, don't they? I would not say such things if I were you. Do not, do, do not say such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? And the leaders say in 3.11, Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They refused to heed the warning. They saw it as either unkind of God or out of God's character to warn them. Or that he would not really do what he said he would do. That's, that, that's not really God's nature, is it? I mean, he's not really that holy. And, and, and we're his people, so he's fine with our sins. Now, their response is pretty fascinating, I thought. They appeal to God's character. Oh, 
I, I forgot a word. They appeal to God's character wrongly. They are used to God's patience. They're used to God's kindness. How can God grow impatient, they ask? They presume upon God's divine forbearance. They dismiss his righteousness and wrath. They suppose that they can just continue to act unrighteously and that God will not do anything to them because they are his so-called people. They presume upon God's grace, appealing to it as a license to sin. Now, does that sound at all familiar? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Asked Paul in Romans 6. <laughs> Heck no. Was it heck no that he said? By no means. May it never be. God forbid. And then he asks again, what, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Heck no. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Jude says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Huh. Who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The perversion of God's grace was as much an Old Testament problem as it is a New Testament problem. Yeah, I flipped that on its head because we all expect it the other way. It was much, as much an Old Testament problem as it is a New Testament problem. How were they perverting God's grace? By turning it into a license to sin. Now, think of a license. What does a license do? It gives you the right, the authority, the privilege of doing something. If I have a driver's license, I have the right to drive. I am approved by the government to drive. And what these people are saying is that God's gracious patience gives them God's permission. His approval gives them the right to go and sin willfully, ongoingly against God himself. Now, to be clear, our only hope is God's grace. God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves us from the consequences of our sin. But to then use that grace as an excuse to sin, in order to justify sin, is godless and an utter perversion of that very grace. God forbid that we ever say, oh, I can go out and sin because I know tomorrow God's going to forgive me. Sin is so egregious that it took the slaughter of the perfectly spotless Lamb of God to pay for it. That is how bad sin is. 
In dying for sin, Jesus upheld and vindicated the value of God's righteousness and the worth of God's holiness. His crucifixion was a demonstration of the value and the worth of God's righteousness and holiness. And so when people assert that, the, that grace now gives them the license to go out and willfully continue devaluing, degrading, and demeaning God's righteousness and holiness, what a distortion of the grace of God. And here, the very thing that is staying God's hand from judging Israel for their egregious sin is what they are using as an excuse to continue in those sins. Will the distortions ever stop? These blokes not only distort the law and the scriptures for themselves, but even go so far as to distort the very nature of God in order to justify their ungodliness. So let's see here. If what they do is in opposition to God, and yet they claim to be God's people, if it walks like an orc, and talks like an orc, and looks like an orc, and acts like an orc, it must be a hobbit. What must it be? What must it be? Yeah, it sounds like an orc to me too. Herein is the difference between the true Israelite and the Israelite in name only, the believer and the unbeliever in such scenarios. You see, we, we all sin. We all sin. But when our sin is exposed and corrected, how do we respond? Do we twist the word of God and the character of God in order to justify our sins and to continue to willfully violate God's righteousness? Or do we repent of our sins when God discloses them to us? Simply the difference right there. You're not going to be perfect. None of us are going to be perfect. We're all going to sin. When God shows you your sin, how do you respond? Which takes us to the amazing words of promise in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 2. There we read, And I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. In the midst of all of this warning, Micah turns to promise. Promise to those who are God's own. The Lord promises to gather a remnant, to bring together his true people. But he isn't just gathering them. He gathers them to do something. He gathers them to break them out. <laughs> the NIV says it this way. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. 
Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So this is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about a future king, the Messiah king, Jesus coming and going before them. The words, the one who breaks open the way or he who opens the breach is actually a single word here. It is the word breaker. As it says in the NASB, the breaker goes up before them. Now there's a title for Jesus most of us have never heard of. Jesus is the breaker. Breaker, breaker, good buddy. I just had to say that because I was thinking. The picture is vivid here. He breaks through the wall. He breaches the gate. I get the picture of Helms deep in my mind as the great wall is burst into a million pieces, right? Yeah, everybody was thinking that, I know. But the picture here is not a breaching of the wall to get in, but it is a breaching of the wall to get out. Jesus breaks the wall as though it was a prison as though they were in captivity, and leads them out. And this is Micah's picture of promise to God's chosen people. The breaker is breaking them out of their bondage to sin. That is, he breaks the power of sin over them. This is his promise. They will no longer be slaves to sin. The coming king will deliver them from this spiritual captivity. Psalm 107, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Not only does the king deliver us from the consequences of our sin, but also breaks the power of sin over us. So that we can respond uprightly to his word. He provides the solution. So that we can do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with our God so that we can turn from our sin when it is exposed. We know, says Paul in Romans 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Hallelujah! For the one who has died has been set free from sin. The breaker has broken the wall. You have been set free from sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. (laughs) For sin 
will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is what Jesus, our breaker, has done through the breaking of his body on the cross. He has broken the power of sin, the dominion of sin over us. And then he gave us the spirit to empower us. (laughs) If that wasn't enough, then he gave us the Holy Spirit and said, here you go. You now have the power. As Micah, Micah says, I am filled with the Spirit, with the power of the Spirit of the Lord, in verse 8, and of justice and of might. Even more so are you, believers, filled with the power of the Spirit, filled with justice and might, because the Spirit of God dwells within you, because the breaker has broken down the walls. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, of escape that you may be able to bear it. Huh. It will never overcome you, because you are His. What amazing promises these are all contained in the word for your benefit, for your good, so that you will walk uprightly and humbly with your God. As I said at the beginning, the purpose of this message is for us to rejoice in His word. Whether it is a word of reproof or of encouragement, of correction or of mercy, discipline or promise, that we will rejoice at His Word in its entirety because we know it is from a loving Father who desires to do good to us and who desires a deeper relationship with us which He facilitates through the correction and encouragement in His Word. That's so cool. Thanks, Wolf, for that. That was a great line. I took that one from Wolf. Plagiarer that I am. Get this. David, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Wow. That's what I want to do next. Seven times a day praise God for His word, for His law, for these judgments that He gives us to warn us. Seven times a day. There's a challenge for you. That wasn't in my sermon, but good luck. He continues, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Whoa. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. And so, and so, 
rejoice when you are reproved by God's word. You heard me. Rejoice when you are reproved by God's word. Rejoice when his word corrects you. Rejoice when God warns you through his word. Because it is all of grace for your good, church. It is of His grace for your good, church. And rejoice in the promises of His mercy and grace that have been and will be extended to you. Rejoice! Oh, if there weren't promises, but there is the breaker. There is the promise. The promises. Rejoice that when you sin, God's grace is there to forgive you, to turn you back to Himself. Rejoice at His Word, church. I conclude with the words of Jeremiah. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Because I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Let's pray. O Lord God of hosts, we thank you for your word that you do not leave us to grovel in the mud and the mire, but you offer us something so much greater. And your word shows us the path. Thank you that you didn't leave us out there, but that you came out, that Jesus came into the mud and the muck and the mire and made a path, broke down the walls of mud castles that we had built up. He broke them down and led us out so that we can walk in your presence. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.